I appreciate last week uh, being with my my boys. Uh, we were in New York City and we did the city. Uh, the city did us. I don't. I don't know. It was. Uh, it, it was. It was a journey. It was great. Uh, we spent a lot of time just walking around because New York, you just bleed money. Uh, and so I said, we, I'm paying for your food and your hotel and everything else. We're just going to walk around, whatever we can do for free. And so that's kind of how the, how, the, how the trip ended up. We had a great time, though. Uh, it was also good uh, whenever we had to take some time because life does go on after New York. Uh, we had to go back to the hotel room, and we spent a little time doing some homework and... Uh, my son, uh, oldest son, Caleb, is at West Point, and he's in physics. And so that's a pretty demanding school, let, let alone demanding class. And so he's there working on that. And then and K- uh, Joshua, our youngest, is in pre-algebra. And I'm not good at either one of those, okay, pre-algebra or physics. And so it was great to be in the hotel room and to have Caleb tutoring uh, my my eighth grader in algebra. And so it was just fun to watch that kind of uh, unfold. I was never any good, and still to this day, I'm not good at math uh, in any sense of, the, of, the, uh, of that word. In fact, I struggled through school just getting through the math credits, getting enough to graduate. And then I go to college. And uh, then they said, you got to take more math. And, and then you got to take college algebra. And I was like, I, I didn't even make make it through pre-algebra back in junior high. So I had to take this beginner math before I could even take this college algebra stuff that I had to get up to speed on. And so as I jumped into beginner math, the professor warned us on the front end, you got to realize that we are taking you from nothing to college algebra. We're going to cover a week's worth of material every single day. So you don't want to miss. I heard that. I locked in on that. And I was pretty good for a while until I missed one day. In one day, literally, I'm not kidding you, I could not catch up after missing a week's worth of material in one day. Well, we are in a series of messages that we have been covering a lot of ground, a lot of real estate in a short amount of time. Uh, Lori kind of uh, talked along the, uh, the Acts theme last week, but not exactly in line with the series. A great complimentary message to it, and I'll come back and talk about that at the end. But the point being is that we've covered from six months prior to Christ leaving the earth and His crucifixion and His resurrection. Six months prior to that, He introduces a new idea. The idea of the church. He introduces it out there, throws it out there. It's not a man's creation, not my creation. It was the idea of Jesus. And He brought it out and He said, this is my exit strategy. Now you fast forward... Where we're going to be today in Acts chapter 4, if you have your Bibles turned there, we are six months after the crucifixion and resurrection. So a span of a year, if you look at it on a timeline. This series of messages is very foundational. It's the very beginning of the church movement. It's the very beginning of what the church is supposed to be about. And it's very it's a great introduction as we think about being a part of a church and, and, and renewing what we really value as a church. And so if you're looking at Grace Point and considering, hey, I want to go to the next level, what does it mean to be a part of this church? Our North Point new members class is coming up in a couple of weeks. That will be where we will talk a little bit more about our philosophies, our directions, and how we get there and so forth. But this, it does lay a great foundation. So what I want to do is I want to treat you like my, my algebra class in college. I want to give you three 
Now, I want to give you a year's worth of material, if you will. Uh, six months prior to his resurrection to six months after his resurrection, this period of time. And I want to do it in three minutes, all right? So I'm going to have it. You can set a timer on me or whatever, but I want to kind of give you the last three messages, a minute each message, to kind of lay the foundation in case you're just now joining us in this series. So this will hopefully catch us all up. So here we go. Here's the first thing I want us to, to, to realize and know is that the church is God's plan A. All right? There's not a plan B. Uh, there is, there's a plan A. And God's plan A is the church. He, he, he came up with it. He invented it. It was his idea from the beginning and not ours. In Caesarea Philippi, he stood there on, on this rocky soil and he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell are not going to stop it. I'm going to build it. Hell will not stop it. It will move forward. It's a movement and, and, and hell will not stop it. So that was six months prior to his crucifixion. Now, the second point I want us to realize is that the church has been selected selected for God's mission, all right? Now, we have been chosen to be a part of His mission. He could have done it without us, but He chose us. He chose to do it with us. As I read a, f- a few weeks ago, uh, this statement, the church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. So He's got His mission out there, and He could have given it to the angels. Think about that. That would have been flawless, right? Give it to the angels. They're heavenly beings. They'll appear to people. They'll give them my message, and it'll all be perfect, right? He didn't. He could have written it on the clouds, where every sunrise and sunset, you'd go to bed at night, and you would see that, that, that important message that needs to be declared. He didn't. He wrote it on the hearts of His believers. And then, as I said back in Matthew 16... As you remember from the very first week, he gave him keys. And he said, listen, I'm going to give you the keys to my kingdom. And whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You have access, responsibility to my kingdom. I'm giving you my keys. That's no small order. Everything we do, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me, please. Everything we do must come to that realization and be about what are we doing to grow and expand His kingdom. That's what the church was given the keys in the very beginning for. We've been invited to join God in His mission. The third point is, is what's this mission about? God's glory throughout the earth is our mission. We've got to see, we've got to raise up worshipers to the ends of the earth. Now let's just take 30 seconds and let's look into heaven for just a moment. This is what heaven will look like if you look in Revelation chapter 7, verses 7 and 9 and 10. Behold, a great multitude that one could not, uh, that one could number from every nation, from all the tribes, from all the peoples, from all the languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. That's what heaven's going to be like. You take all the peoples of all the earth and you bring them and they worship before God. All the peoples will be represented. That's the essence of what I've shared over the past three weeks. The past elements are this, that we are about God's mission. We are about His kingdom. That's what we are about. 
And we need worshipers. And there's 11,000 people groups around the world, over 11,290 to be exact, that need to be worshiping Christ. So that is our mission, is to raise up these worshipers. So as you think about that, let's move forward. And let's talk about this week. Because we started a story in Acts chapter 3. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this week. We're going to continue that story. If you remember that story, what happens is... um, is uh, G, uh, excuse me, Peter and John walk up to the temple. They're going up to pray. And when they get up there to pray, they see a man who's lame. They help this man stand. He's never stood on his feet before. His legs straighten out. His, wrist, his, his ankles straighten out. He's able to walk. He's able to jump. He's able to leap. He's able to run. And he goes into the temple worshiping. This just changes the paradigm. Because now everybody starts gathering around. They start hearing what's going on, what's going on. We recognize that man. That was the man who's been begging for years and years. For 40 years, the Bible says, he has been lame from his birth. Now we come to this story. And we see after the, after the day of Pentecost, there are 3,000 people come to know Christ. And now we're about three months removed from the day of Pentecost. And we have Peter and John now standing in Solomon's portico. In the temple. And there are literally hundreds of people gathering around. And the Sadducees, man, they cannot stand it. They're irate with it. In fact, again, let's look at Acts chapter 4. And let's pick up our story there at verse 1. And as they were speaking, who's they? Peter and John. As they were speaking to the people and the priest and the captain of the temple. And the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. Now that word greatly annoyed means they were ticked off. And there's a, probably a few other words that I won't say that they were just that. They, their blood pressure was up. They were, they were irate. What are these guys doing messing with our system? Because they were teaching the people proclaiming Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. They arrested him. This is the first form of persecution coming upon the early church. Jesus faced it, but now his disciples are going to start facing it. And from this point forward, we're going to start seeing this happening. And they were arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day. And uh, for it was already evening. So you might think in that moment, it's all going to stop. In fact, F.F. Bruce, one of the greatest scholars, uh, of the 20th century said that this passage of Scripture was an inflection point in the early church. It was going to go to the right or it was going to go to the left. It was going to flourish or it was going to die. This is a critical... He says it's as critical of a passage of Scripture as as the day of Pentecost. He says because this is the first moment of persecution and they could have stopped or they were going to move forward and they chose to continue to move forward. Because look what happens Even though they put the people in jail, verse 4, it says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. There's a massive explosion to Christianity. There's a movement happening here. The church is growing and expanding. It's a beautiful story, and yet persecution is going to come up on the scene. Now, why are these Sadducees so upset? Two reasons. One is because the church, the movement of God, is now growing like never before. They try, These are the same, this is the same kangaroo court that tried to kill, that killed Jesus, and they tried to squelch Jesus and stop Jesus, and now all of a sudden there's 5,000 men who are following Christ. 
Scholars believe that three months after the day of Pentecost, where there were 3,000 who became believers, that there's as many as 15,000 people running the streets of Jerusalem now, followers of Jesus. That means there an average of a three-month period, there was an average of 130 new believers a day. You couldn't stop this movement. They tried to kill Jesus, and that would stop it. No, it didn't stop it. They just kept going. And here it is, the same thing. So what are they going to do? The second thing they didn't like is they didn't like they were preaching about the resurrection. You read it right there with me. They were preaching about the resurrection, and the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Jesus had already confronted them in Mark chapter 12, verse 24, when he says, you don't believe the Scriptures nor the power of God. See, the Sadducees weren't miracle believers. They didn't believe in miracles, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. So these were really skeptical individuals, and they're really coming down hard on these disciples. The Sadducees, you've got to realize, were running. They ran the temple. And F.F. Bruce also said that they were the equivalent of the Senate and the Supreme Court. They made the laws. They also interpreted the laws. They also enforced the laws. They, were that kind of, they had that kind of authority in, in the land at that time. And they were, the, again, the very ones who made sure Jesus was snuffed out for a period of time. And so they come to this situation after keeping Peter and John in prison overnight. They rallied together. There were 70 people that would make up the, the Sanhedrin, that would make up, excuse me, that would make up the Sadducees, that would make up the, the court system of that day. And so there were 70 people there. And they come and they bring these two ragtag individuals before them. And they start questioning. They ask them one question. Verse 7. They said, Whose name and by what power are you doing what you're doing? And I want you to focus on that. Whose name are you doing this in? Because everything that we are about as Grace Point Church, everything for the 2,000 years since the founding of the church, everything must be about centered on, built on the very name of Jesus Christ. And in this moment, I have to believe that Peter was remembering back to a time when Jesus had told him in Luke chapter 21. He reminded him that there would be a day that you, as he said, you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. So Peter and John are standing, ragtag guys, disciples of Jesus, in this movement of God, and all of a sudden they're now standing before the most educated, the most affluent, the most powerful senate, the rulers who could kill them in a heartbeat. Now, what are they going to do? And simply what these people are asking is, what are you guys about? Where are you guys going with this? Whose name are you doing this in? And let me say this. Let me bring it to the 21st century, 2013. Your friends and my friends, your acquaintances and my acquaintances, look at you and look at me and look at this church and they want to know what we're about. There are some people who don't darken the door of a church, who don't have a, any kind of relationship, and you have probably people flashing in your mind right now who are far from God, and they want to know what this is all about. And so today what I want to do is I want to share from Peter's lips and from Peter's experience and John's experience about what is the church 
about what's right about the church. There's a lot of things wrong with the church, okay? We have scandals and schisms and we have problems all the time that, that run through the church. That's, that just, just happens. You're dealing with people. But I want to hopefully establish what's right about us. What's right about the church so that when you walk out of here, you can feel assured and confident this is a good thing that I'm about. So let me give these to you. Four things in this passage of Scripture that are that unfolded for us. One is our master is truth. Jesus Christ is truth. Now in this world of no absolute truth, in this world where people struggle with Christ, they're going to struggle with you calling Christ truth. You look at verse 9 in this passage and verse 10, you find Peter's response. If we're being examined today concerning the good uh, deed done to this crippled man, by what means have we, has he been healed? Let, me, let it be known to all of you and to all the, uh, the people of Israel that by the name, see it comes back to the name, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, so you don't, you don't mistake who he is, he's Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you killed, whom God raised from the dead. Whom you killed three different times. Peter will say that throughout his writings and throughout his messages in the book of Acts. And that is this, is that you killed him, but God raised him. You killed him, but God raised him. He is that person. That's who we come in. That's who we represent. We don't represent ourselves. So you come to verse 11. Again, in Peter's continuing response. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which have become the cornerstone. Now you and I, unless you're a builder, unless you're a builder in the ancient times, probably don't value cornerstones like they did back then. Let me talk about a cornerstone for just an example, for just a moment. Because in the, in the day of lasers, in the lay, day of to, topo surveys, in the, in the day of, of hiring contractors to do all the work, you and I, the common people, don't think about a cornerstone. But a cornerstone is a vital piece of structure. It creates this, this, this north and south, east and west corner, this right angle corner on which everything is built upon. On any building and structure in ancient times, it was that element that, that brought security to the structure. And let me say this, Jesus Christ, if He's our cornerstone, He is going to bring security to your life. He's going to bring security to the structure of your marriage. He's going to bring security to your, to your hopes and your dreams, your, your careers and wherever you're going in life, if you're building off of Him as the cornerstone. If He's just a a token God in your life, no, He's not going to be that. But if He is your cornerstone, you can build secure off of Him. 93% of Americans don't believe that there's any... Excuse me, they believe that that truth comes through just personal opinions. I feel this way, it it must be this way. How many of y'all have ever been to Destin, Florida, the Redneck Riviera, uh, and or, or Gulf Shores? Raise your hand. All right, you you go on the beach and you get out there as I have with the kids and you build sandcastles. What do you do with a sandcastle? You build it, you put a big moat around it, you spend all these hours in the in playing, and pretty soon the tide changes. Pretty soon somebody comes by and knocks it down. But you spend all day on that. In vain? Yes, it was in vain. But you'll do it again tomorrow because your kids want to do it tomorrow. What am I saying? Are you building sandcastles? Are you building a life?
Because even Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, when he was talking about how you're going to build your life on a stone, or you're going to build it on a sure foundation, or are you going to build it on sand? See, when you have Jesus Christ as your cornerstone, He's your right angle, He's, he's your left angle, he's, he, he, he is what you're going to, you're going to have a sure and solid future, but also a certainty into the future. Security in your present, but also certainty into the future as you build your life. I don't know about you and your experience with building. I'm not a builder at all, but we built our, we had our first house. We moved into our first house that we own. We moved back from Africa and I figured out very quickly what crown molding and baseboards are for. And that some of y'all know what those are for. Those are to cover up a multitude of sins. We, we didn't figure that out until we moved into our house and we had to repair something. And we took down the baseboard and we thought, man, who was building this house? You know, it, it, it was, there was nothing straight about it. It was all crooked. And, but hey, you just put a baseboard up there and nobody will ever see it. How are you building your life? See, the, the chalk line of your life is built off of a cornerstone, a right angle, a left angle. They didn't have lasers. They had to look at that cornerstone and they had to say, okay, this is the direction I'm going in my life. What are you building your life on? It will give you security, yes, but it will also give you certainty into the future if Jesus Christ is the one that you're building your life on. Jesus said, I want you to read it out loud with me. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is kind of narrow-minded here, I know. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, no one comes. He's pretty narrow-minded, I'm with you. But he's also very inclusive as well, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But first of all, I want us to establish something today, that our master, our master is truth. That's one thing the church has going for it. And, and it's uncompromising. You can't get away from it. Number two is the message is irreplaceable. Now, I know that I would like to say, and I'd be the coolest man in town if I could say that all roads lead to Jesus or all roads lead to heaven. And then we'll all just end up there if we're all just sincere about our own individual faith. I really wish I could say that. I'm that kind of a peaceful kind of guy. But I can't. When I go to verse 12, I look at verse 12 and I just can't, I can't get away from it because he, he says it in two different negatives. He says, there's no one else. There's no other name. He makes it very clear. He drives it home. Look at verse 12 with me. He continues his rebuttal with, the, with, these, uh, with these religious leaders. And there is salvation in no one else. And there's no other name. There he comes back to the name. No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, there's, it's not multiplicity of ways. There's one way, there's one man, there's one path, and it's irreplaceable. We as a church have that going for us. That we have a message that cannot be replaced. I love it that our church embraces and allows and uh, invo- involves people of different faiths. This, this, this past Christmas, our family hosted uh, a, a Muslim from Afghanistan. He, he was, he, he's all his life, he's, he's a Muslim. That's all he's ever known. He's never been to a church. He's never been in the home of a Christian. All he's ever known is Islam. We had him in our home over Christmas. He ate at our table. 
He prayed with us. We gave him space for him to go to his room and to pray face towards Mecca. We brought him here on Christmas Eve night. He spent Christmas morning with us. He was thoroughly presented the gospel of salvation. But you know what? He didn't accept it. He didn't reject it. He embraced us and He embraced our commitment to our faith. Here's the point I'm trying to make. is I can't compromise this. It's irreplaceable message. There is salvation in no other name. And i got to make sure that I make that clear, you make that clear. I checked in seven different translations. It says no one else. One translation said it like this. There's no one else who can save us. No one else who can save us. What does it mean to be saved? It's very exclusive when you look at it, when you say that Jesus is the only way. But then when you look at Jesus and you understand Him fully, it's also very inclusive. Because in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Therefore He is always able to save those who come to God through Him since He lives to intercede for them. Jesus Christ is able to embrace and accept anybody from any walk of life, any belief system, if they embrace, if they come to God through Him. The word saved, we use it in verse 12, we use it here in Hebrews 7. What does it mean? I think the best picture I can think of is is actually a very destructive picture. Whenever you think about the fires, forest fires, you've been watching the news and what's been going on out in California and the fires there. But a few years ago in Yellowstone National Park, there was a similar fire that just literally almost obliterated the park. And large portions of it just turned to to ash. One of the firefighters who was walking through the charred remains came upon a, a very, very clear, petrified, almost carbonized, but yet still in perfect form, right next to the stump of a tree. He walked upon a bird's nest. And over the bird's nest, again, was this carbonized life form of a bird, of a mother bird. And almost in disgust, he took his foot and he just kicked it out of the way. But when he kicked it, the bird, the mother bird disintegrated, the nest around disintegrated, and three baby chicks were right there, still alive. And what had happened in the fire is the fire became so intense that the mother did what a mother would do. It covered over those little eggs and they just gave her life, sacrificed it all to save her, her three little chicks. I tell you that story because that is exactly what you see when you come to the message of Christ. It's what's irreplaceable. We can't get away from it. It's beautiful, it's powerful, it's inclusive. Yes, it's exclusive. There's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. But it's also inclusive because He embraces anyone who will come to Him from any background, from any history, from any story. I want you to read out loud with me Psalm chapter 36, verse 7. In fact, I want you to read it out loud. How precious... That's what salvation looks like. We take refuge in the shadow of His wings, much like these little chicks found themselves. Our Master is truth. Our message is irreplaceable. 
our ministry is life-changing. What we're about here, this is one thing that, again, the church has right. It's life-changing. God has this way. God has this way of doing the impossible with the improbable. I can't explain it, but it's beautiful. God does the impossible with the improbable. He looks at people and he'll pull them out of a crowd. He'll, he'll call a misfit out of a crowd. He'll take a murderer and make him a missionary in the Apostle Paul. He'll take a not, a nobody, a, a left behind, a commoner, and he'll make them something. He gives life to emptiness. You don't believe me? Look, look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and common. Now just focus on those two words. They were uneducated and common men. I did a word study on that word uneducated. Now listen to this one I'm about to tell you. It literally means they, will, they were illiterate men. They, Peter and John, maybe they couldn't even spell their names. They were illiterate men. They didn't have some great pedigree. They were common men. They had no resume to impress you, but yet these, these, these religious leaders, these educated people, they were what? They were astonished at what they were hearing. These men had been with Jesus. This, they're blown away. Here's the God doing the, the impossible with the improbable. And I love it when people give excuses to why they can't serve or why they can't go or why they can't do because God is wanting to do the impossible with the improbable. I can tell you my own story and, and I am an example of God doing the impossible with the improbable. And I, some of you all have heard this, so I'll not give you all the details. But I grew up so fearful of reading and praying and answering questions in church that I would go to my Sunday school teacher at the beginning of each year, each promotion year, and I would tell them, don't call on me to pray, don't call on me to read, or I will get up and leave. I was just matter of fact with it. I was scared to death by it, didn't want to be, have anything to do with it. What in the world am I doing on this stage right this minute? I don't make light of that. Let me tell you about last night. I'm in my bedroom about 8 o'clock at night. My face buried in the carpet, thinking, praying about this message, sweating, thinking, oh my gosh, will I get this message out? Will it be articulate? Will they hear it? Will I stumble on myself? Getting it out. God loves doing the impossible with the improbable. Whenever you look at Moses, he had excuses. When you look at Timothy, he was young and inexperienced. Paul said, don't let him look down on your youth. He became the pastor of the church of Ephesus. When you look at Paul, he was a murderer. He becomes a missionary for God. God loves when you bring your excuses. In fact, so let me just say this to you today. Bring your excuses. 
Bring every single one of them, write them down, put them before God. The next time God stirs in your heart about doing something for Him, going somewhere for Him, just put all your excuses down and then just say, God, do the impossible with the improbable. And watch God begin to work in your life. But if all you do is live with your excuses, live with your excuses, then you'll never see God do the impossible. We have a ministry that changes lives. That's one of the things the church has going for it. Number four is our mission is an imperative. Our mission is an imperative. We can't get away from it. We can try to run from it. Listen, what I'm saying today, what I've said for past weeks, and what we talk about at Grace Point Church constantly, if you're new to Grace Point, you're probably sick of hearing about it, but I'm just sorry. All I can say is it wasn't my plan. My plan would have been to stay here a little local and not, not bother anybody. I'm an introvert, so therefore I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bother anybody else and let everybody else kind of do their own thing. Peter and John were told. In fact, this conclave of, of religious leaders kind of go aside by themselves and they kind of work it out. Okay, what can we do to these guys? Well, we can't do anything. We try to kill Jesus and that didn't work. Look where it got us. And so let's go. We'll threaten them. You see it with me, verse 17. It says, but in order that we may not spread, that we spread no further. They didn't want, they want to stop this, this wildfire, this movement of God called the church. We spread no further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. Comes back to his name again. So that they called them and they charged them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. Now, Peter and John, this is a good chance for you to bell. Peter and John, this is why F.F. Bruce says this is the most pivotal passage in the New Testament outside of the day of Pentecost. And that at this moment, if Peter and John would have said, okay, yes, sir, we'll not do that, sir, anymore, and they would have walked away, it would have stopped right then. But they didn't. Because the, the mission of God is an imperative. We cannot get away from it. So this is what he said in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to, rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And then, and when they uh, had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people were all praising God for what had happened. I, I say this to you, church. We've got to realize that this, this, this calling of, uh, of ours, we've got a message, we've got a master, we've, we've got a ministry that is life-changing and we've got a message that is irreplaceable and we have a, we have a master who is truth. We can't just keep that to ourselves. We've got to let it out. We've got to take what God has given us and put it inside of us. We've got to share it. You heard Lori share last weekend, and I want to just restate that in one simple statement. There are two truths from this about God's mission. One, we've got to live on mission. You heard that last week through Lori's message. We've got to live on mission 50 weeks out of the year, 24-7, living on mission. 50 weeks. Mike, what are the other two weeks? Do your math. We need to go on mission. Where is that? Where is that? What does that mean? What, what culture? What country? 
Listen, I, I would hope and pray to God that you would understand your role, your part in this is not, not just simply a joy trip around the world, but a mission of God that He's called us to. The, Jesus sent out His disciples two by two. The church at Antioch was the first church to send disciples out as missionaries. We have six teams that we're sending out. We have one team right now in Zambia. Uh, they'll be back on Monday. We need to be praying for them. They have, a, have had a great trip. And, and we have another team that's leaving out this week, this next coming Saturday, to West Africa. We have six other trips around the world. Let me just kind of give you a quick snapshot of them in case you'd be interested in them. We've got West Africa. We've got several trips going back to West Africa. I'm going to West Africa with a team. I have spot for one more woman on the team. We have Aubrey Barton is uh, co-leading with me. She's one a female. We have spot for one more woman in January. Any takers? Think about it. But we have also teams that are going out to this West African country to work with this, this people group that are going out in December and February and March. Get your passport and get on the bus. We also have a team going out in March to South Africa. It's our largest team ever to send. We're sending them to actually not go work in a village. It's going to be kind of a mission light, if you will. It's actually going and working in South Africa with missionaries and missionary children. Missionaries that serve a hundred different missionaries that serve around Southern Africa in the Indian Ocean Islands. And they're going to be coming to this one place. And our church is going to be sending the largest team we've ever sent, 22 different people is what we're trying to, uh, to, to get on that team, to go there and to serve the missionaries and their children. Our children, when we were missionaries in Africa... They had one week of the year that they looked forward to. Next to Christmas, it was the week that they looked forward to more than anything else. And maybe as much as Christmas. It was every March whenever a team would come over from the States and they would serve them, do vacation Bible school with them and teach them. And we'll be doing the same thing. We have teams going to South Asia. You heard us at Christmas time talk about, about the opportunities in the sex trafficking industry and how we're trying to rescue women that have been caught in that. We have a team leaving in one month. We have another team leaving out in March. This is what we can be about. It's about taking the message. It's about taking our master. It's about taking the life-changing ministries that, 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 that the church has to the places that don't know them. So many people. They say, oh, I'm willing to go, but I'm planning on staying. Let's reverse that. Let's be planning to go. Let's be willing to stay, but planning to go.